really wanted to carry on with this uh, thought of spirit and mind that I've been talking about and carry on that flow. So, um, yeah, we thought we'd do like this. Uh, last week, of course, we spoke about spirit and mind. And that if we are people of the spirit, then we must operate from our spirit, the place where God dwells. It's very possible to be full of the spirit, but to allow that spirit to be quenched by your mind. And I want to quickly recap what we've talked about in this last couple of weeks and then look at another way, uh, a lesson that we can learn from an old, from a, a biblical character about perhaps how we can uh, not let our minds crush our spirits, but let our spirits be dominant over our minds. We've said this though, that logic and reasoning are not king of the universe. Logic and reasoning are not king of the universe and they are not the best way to understand God or anything spiritual. After all, Isaiah says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so even if God does operate in logic and reasoning, it's a different logic and reasoning to yours because his ways are higher than yours and mine and his thoughts are higher than ours. So uh, we can't really interact with God on a mind basis. It's not possible for your mind to wrap itself around all the intricacies of God. And if we walk with him as we are designed to walk with him, we must learn to commune with him spirit to spirit, not mind to spirit. Because we are people of the spirit. who worship a God who is spirit. And Jesus himself says in John 4, 24, God is spirit. And his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. So in order to worship God, we've got to worship in spirit, which is different to mind. If you reach out with your mind or your soul and your feelings, it's impossible to truly connect with God who is spirit. If you're operating primarily from your mind or from, from your soul, from kind of this, this feeling part of you, then your connection with God can happen, but it's likely it'll be weak and fleeting and unsatisfying. And I don't want you to have a weak, fleeting, or unsatisfying, unsatisfying even relationship with Jesus. In order to do that, you have to learn to operate from this place called spirit. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. So it must be more than possible to quench. If you, if you think of the spirit, one of the pictures of spirit, one of the metaphors at Pentecost was fire. Well, your mind can be like water that you pour on the fire of the spirit that quenches it, that puts it out. But actually, you've got to, what we should be doing is really, we talked about this as well last time, we've got to be feeding our spirit, putting fuel on the fire of the spirit rather than dousing the spirit by trying to get our mind and logic and reasoning around everything. We connect with God via spirit. And most of the time, if you try and use logic and reason to understand the words of God or even the heart of God, you will end up very frustrated and disappointed because you won't understand or grasp it, or certainly not the fullness of it. And of course, there's this fight. We said this, there's a fight that goes on in our hearts. That's nothing new, really. It's always been there. But in this time, when lots of things have come at your mind, lots of rules and regulations and things you can do and can't do, and all sorts of arguments that are all about logic and reasoning or appear to be, but actually many of them seem very illogical, which is very confusing for your mind because you can't make sense of it. But listen, there's always going to be a fight between mind and spirit. Paul writes in Galatians 3 and says, So then, the two incompatible and conflicting forces within you are the self-life of your flesh 
and the new creation life of your spirit. It's always been a fight between mind and spirit, between that part of you that's full of Holy Spirit and that part of you that is not yet renewed. When you hear the voice of spirit, it'll almost always bring comfort because you'll almost always be contrary to your mind which is being renewed. But of course, as you go on and you learn to listen to spirit and flow in spirit, then it becomes easier because you, that conflict goes away because you see the effects of it and the results of it and you step out in it. But there'll always be conflict because Holy Spirit will always draw you into more. He'll always want to take you further and draw you into something deeper. So there'll always be conflict because he'll always want to expand within you. But it does get easier. And of course, not many people like conflict. But if you're wanting to live a conflict-free life, forget being a spirit-filled Christian. Forget moving in the things of God. Forget thinking about the kingdom of God. If you want to move in the things of God, you've got to be willing to embrace the conflict between mind and spirit. Unless we learn to hear the voice of the spirit, speak the voice of the spirit and obey the voice of the spirit, probably the most important one, then although there will well be, and I believe will be, new dimensions open for us, exciting opportunities, different places to go and do things, we will not be able to enter into them, nor enjoy them. Because it's only by the Spirit you can go into deeper things with God. And last week, of course, we talked about prophecy, and uh, we said that really simply prophecy is when somebody speaks the th good things of God, they speak the things of the Spirit. And we said we don't mean just kind of quoting Bible verses over people, but when somebody begins to speak peace, blessing, good things, healing, wholeness, encouragement into somebody else's life, they are at that moment speaking the very words of God. If you tell someone they are loved, chosen, blessed, healed, they've got a future and a hope, they've got dreams of them and thinks thoughts of peace and continually the intense life filled with his goodness, any of those things spoken into the lives of those around you you are prophesying right there and then. In that moment, you are foretelling, proclaiming, sharing, giving good news and speaking it into their difficulties and challenges. And as you do so, you're offering an opportunity for them to receive those words and walk into the truth of it themselves. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 14, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of Prophecy, those are prophecies I speak to people for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Everyone can prophesy and everyone should prophesy. And you probably have been prophesying without even knowing it. Because prophecy is about speaking to people for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. You can do that. You're more than able to do that. Of course, the fullness of prophecy is more than that in the Old Testament. It was much more about rebuke and pointing out what you'd got wrong and pointing out when you couldn't go. In the New Testament, his focus is much more on strengthening, encouragement and comfort. And there is a place in the prophetic for that rebuke, for pointing out what's wrong. But listen, if you're starting out or you're not so sure, that's not your role. You've got to learn first to strengthen, encourage and comfort. And then God might give you something of rebuke. But first of all, learn to get super good at strengthening, encouragement and comfort. When you're super good at that, God might allow you to point out the wrong. But because even if you point out the wrong, you've got to point out how to put it right. And the heart of God in it, even when people get it wrong, even pointing out something that's wrong, is meant to be strengthening, encouraging and comforting. You see, the Old Testament prophets, they were just like, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. I mean, it's quite depressing. I read, I read all through Isaiah a few months ago. And I'll be honest with you, it's just like, this is wrong, that's wrong, the other's wrong. 
eventually it gets to the good stuff around chapter 40 odd. But the first 40 chapters are like, whew, this guy's on a downer, man. But listen, prophecy, New Testament prophecy, the core of it is about strengthening, encouraging, comforting. And of course, that's got to be according to the faith you've got. You don't expect you to operate in my faith or anybody else's faith. He expects you to do it in your faith. But as we exercise faith in this ability to strengthen, encourage and comfort, which you have got because the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you, then you get more confident about it. You become more assured and you become more articulate. We talked as well about, about a prophetic church. And so being a prophetic church and being a, being a prophetic people is more than just speaking words. It means we're bringing hope new possibilities, new dimensions, speaking the future into the present, framing a new picture for people. A prophetic church is a place where people are walking from darkness into light. They're seeing new possibilities for their futures and choosing to leave the past behind and walk into the futures that have been decreed over them. A prophetic church is not simply a church where someone stands up every week and says, thus saith the Lord. Anyone can and should prophesy. There's nothing super special about that. What is special and what is truly New Testamently prophetic is when new futures are actually being walked into, when pasts get left behind and present futures become present realities on the earth. That's the mark of a truly prophetic church family, which I believe we are because we see that all the time. Now, for the rest of this morning, I want to keep talking about this idea of spirit and mind. And how it's more than possible for your mind to hinder your spirit and your mind to quench the flow of the spirit. Remember, your spirit's like a little fire. Your mind, if you're not careful, can be a bucket of water. And when you your mind overtakes your spirit, it's like pouring water on your spirit. It kills it. Kills what God wants to do. Kills the voice of God up to you. So you've got to kind of control your mind and allow this fire of the spirit to take over, which can feel scary. Because fire can be used for good and it can be used for bad. But the fire of God is always for good. It's always for beautiful things, burning up that which needs burning up, purifying that which needs purifying. If we're really going to grow a spirit-filled people, which I believe we must if we're going to get into everything God wants us to as we go forward, we must learn to discern the voice of the Spirit. And since the voice of the Spirit is almost always contrary to the voice of the Word, we must learn to listen to the voice of the Word with a critical ear. You see, nearly everything you hear from the world is not about strengthening, it's not about encouraging, it's not about comfort. And, and anything that goes against the heart and will of God is not the spirit of God. So anything that speaks about coercion or control or manipulation, any of those things is not the spirit of God. And it doesn't matter how anybody dresses it up as to why it's necessary, it's not the heart and spirit of God. Because God is about freedom. God is about life. God gives you the freedom to make your own choices. He does not coerce you in any way, shape or form or force you to do anything in any way possible. He gives you freedom of choice. So we've got to listen critically to what's going on and go, is that the voice of the Spirit or is that the voice of a different Spirit? Is it the voice of the Spirit of God which brings freedom and liberty and life? Or is it a different Spirit? And of course the other challenge for us is that we must never allow our minds to be boxed in to think we've grasped and understood everything. Once you think you've sorted God out and got him all sorted and know exactly how he's going to operate, he will immediately bust you out of that box if you allow him. Of course, what many people do, and I've seen this time and time again, is they go, this is how God works, this is how God does things, and as long as it's within these parameters, I'm all right. And then God does something outside of those parameters, 
well then you've got a choice. You either expand your box to fulfill it, or you go, that's not God. Except it might well be God, and you might well miss it, which is exactly what happens to John the Baptist. And we're going to look at his life now because that's exactly what happens to him, and he misses it. We've got to be willing to be flexible, to reevaluate, to reconsider, to go back over things, to be flexible in our minds, to change tack when we understand things in different ways. Now, John the Baptist, his job was to make the way for Jesus. And he had a special connection with the Spirit. There's a moment described in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 1, when um, John and Jesus are both embryos, fetuses in their wombs. And Mary and Elizabeth, so Mary the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth the mother of John, uh, they're actually cousins and they come together, they, they go around, somebody goes to somebody's house to say hello. And the Bible says that John, in the womb of Elizabeth, leapt for joy when he knew that Jesus was around. That's fascinating. Even, even as a fetus, John could understand spirit. And people say that fetuses are not real life. No life's life. No matter what age you started, life's life. We've got to make sure life's precious. And we've got to stand up for life. Because just because it hasn't emerged into the earth yet, doesn't mean it's not life. Whilst it's resting in a mother's womb, it's life. And it's precious. So precious that this fetus, not even uh, aware of the outside world, could jump for joy at the presence of Jesus. So there's some connection with spirit. There's some understanding. Even before John was birthed into the world, there was a connection with Jesus. And John does prepare the way for Jesus. He baptises people. He says, hey, somebody's coming after me who's going to be better than me and greater than me and I'm preparing the way for him. And we see from Matthew 3 that he lives in the wilderness. He speaks of repentance. His clothes are made of camel's hair. His food was locust and wild honey. And of course, when I read that, it reminds me of the Old Testament prophets uh, who were very different, very radical. John lives in the wilderness and the people come out to him eats locusts and wild honey. There's something radically different. It reminds me of people like Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Hosea and all the other Old Testament prophets. He carries on the tradition of those biblical prophets because that's all he's known. He knows he's a prophet and he's called a prophesy about one who is to come in the future. So he's read his Bible, the Old Testament, and he understands this is what a prophet does. They're a bit different. They're a bit weird. They're a bit wacky. They're in the wilderness. They eat strange things, do strange things, say strange things. So John becomes a prophet in the mould of the prophet that he understands and knows. But John has a connection with spirit. Because we read this in John 1. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen son. So although John was in the mould of an Old Testament prophet, he clearly had the ability to see beyond that because he recognises Jesus as the Lamb of God. He recognised it as a fetus in the womb. He recognises it now. He understands Jesus is the one who's being called to point people to and is able to point people to him. And on more than one occasion, read that John clearly identifies Jesus as Messiah, as Lamb of God, as the Chosen One. He can see with his spirit. He can recognise Jesus. And yet, he's trapped. Excuse me. He is trapped in an Old Testament way of thinking. Although he can see and recognise Jesus as Jesus, he don't manage to flow in the way of Jesus. He's a contemporary of Jesus, connected by a spirit to Jesus, but he's unable to express himself as Jesus did. If you read about John, 
he unfolds what he could see in his culture and in his way and in the way he understood a prophet to be. It's interesting that all John could do is just point out the negative. He didn't really have any answers. He could only point out the problems. It's a constant call to repentance because people have sinned. He calls out religious people as a brood of vipers and calls out an aristocratic marriage as unlawful. Now, there was nothing wrong. He was right in all that. They did need to repent and the religious people were like a brood of vipers and the marriage of the aristocrats was unlawful. But here's the point. All he could see was what was wrong. He didn't manage to see out for it right. I'll give anything that might help people into a new future. John was preparing for the coming of Messiah, but he himself was not prepared for the way Messiah would unfold the kingdom. He has this revelation by the spirit of the rule and function of Jesus, yet appears stuck in an old mindset. Interestingly though, not everybody was stuck there. Later on in John we read this. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So some of John's disciples see Jesus and recognise that there's more. They understand John was the forerunner. John was the warm-up act for Jesus. And why stick with the warm-up act when you can follow the real thing? So they go, we recognise, John, you've been pointing us to Jesus, that's your job. Well, now there is Jesus, so we're going to do what you've been telling us to do and follow Jesus. Because the question is, why didn't John? Why didn't John? He could have worked out that his job was done, got off the stage and learned from the one, from the main act. But he didn't. As he struggles to understand the acts of Jesus, he finds himself in prison for calling out this unlawful marriage of an aristocratic family. And he finds himself in prison. And he sends messages to Jesus. He says this, when John heard in prison where the Messiah, what the Messiah was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come? Or should they expect somebody else? When he heard what Messiah was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect somebody else? This is the man not too long ago said, I have seen and testified that this is God's chosen one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is going on? Well, what's happening is that John was stuck in a certain way of seeing the world. He could only imagine one way that a prophet of Israel would act and Jesus was not acting as a prophet of Israel as far as he understood it. Jesus was working in ways that John simply does not recognise, can't compute or understand. For a start, Jesus is mixing with all these people who are not Jews. And, and he's talking to Samaritans and he's talking to all these different people who Jews don't talk to and he's got this message and he's healing people who are sinners. And he's sitting with tax collectors and, and, and prostitutes. And he, John's like, whoa, I, my mind can't cope with this. Jesus was working in ways that John simply doesn't recognise and can't compute or understand. So what happens is his mind kicks in and he starts to doubt the revelation that he'd got. The water of his mind starts to douse out the fire of his spirit. His mind starts to dictate to his spirit instead of the other way round. But his mind needed to stop dictating to his spirit and his spirit needed to start dictating to his mind. What he needed to do was to ask God to expand his mind so he could see as Jesus saw. See, John had constructed his worldview from the word of God. But that worldview meant he couldn't make room for the word of God. Think about that. He constructed his worldview, his image of what God would do from the word of God, from the Old Testament as he had it. But when the word of God appeared, in the form of Jesus, he couldn't make room for it. Too locked up in his own mind. 
Listen, the kingdom is always advancing. It's always expanding. And our understanding should also be advancing and expanding. If your idea of the kingdom is static and fixed, and this is what God's going to do, and this is how God's going to do it, then you are likely to be left behind or may well miss the word of God in your midst like John did. Even if your current worldview of the kingdom is based on the word of God. It's always expanding, always enlarging. And so, what do we have to do then? Well, we've got to heed the words of Isaiah 54. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. These words are about your mind. You've got to enlarge it. Because your mind is currently not big enough to understand and grasp all that God wants to do. Your mind is the water that will kill the fire of the Spirit. And if you don't enlarge your mind, eventually you'll get stuck there. And it'll be like pouring water on the fire of what God wants to do. And it will quench and douse the fire of God that is in you. So you have to continually expand your mind and be willing to think bigger and greater than anything before. I, w- I was praying uh, a week or so ago at a scripture that the Lord gave me many years ago. And I've, I've, I've kind of never really claimed part of it because it felt too big. It felt like I'm not sure like, I could even say that about myself. Or God wants to even say it about myself. But the other, the other week I felt him say real clear, Adam, I gave you the whole of the scripture, not just part of it. I didn't just give you a little bit of it. I gave you it all and it's for you and it's about you. And I want you to start getting your mind around the fact that that is what I want for you. Okay. So I went, all right, Lord, I'm having it. My mind's going to grow. I, I declare it. I say it. This is going to be true. This is what's going to be right. This is what's going to be how it's going to be, Lord. I'm, I allow my mind to expand. Because if I don't do that, then that scripture, those words over my life, over Fayonai's life, they won't come true. Because my mind will have constricted what God could have done. My spirit was already there, but my mind's got to go, okay. That's what you're saying, Lord. I've got to go for it. I've got to believe it. The idea in these words in Isaiah 54 is that we must continually be willing to mend bigger, to stretch our minds beyond what we think God's up to or even capable of. You've got to lengthen the cards. That is, you must be willing to think bigger than we've ever done before and strengthen the stakes. Listen, strengthening the stakes is really important. The stakes are those things which keep us grounded. They stop the tent from flying away. Think about a tent or a marquee. It's got the ropes coming off it attached to stakes. If you've got to strengthen those stakes, but you make everything else bigger, eventually they'll snap and the whole thing will collapse. So you've got to strengthen those stakes. Now the stakes are the things which keep us grounded. Foundational truths and values which we'll never let go of. Discipleship, community, relationship, openness, honesty, vulnerability, prayer, getting together. All those things, they are foundational. They are the stakes that keep us grounded. We've got to strengthen those things, which might mean we outwork them a little bit differently. But we've got to keep working on them because if we don't strengthen the stakes, but we expand the tent, eventually it might collapse. So we've got to strengthen the stakes, make sure we're even stronger in those things that keep us grounded, those foundational things that will never change. But everything else we've got to go, okay, I want to be stretched, Lord. Stretch my mind. Stretch what might be possible in our family, in our town, in our church, in my business, in my charity, in my life. Stretch it. You see, God is only limited by what you will let him do. That's the reality. God is only limited by what you will let him do. Your mind is the limiting factor on what God can do for you and for us and in us and with us. It's your mind, my mind, that are the limiting factors. If we want to be 
people of the Spirit. We've got to make sure we strengthen our stakes, putting effort in those relationships, rituals and rhythms that ruin us, but at the same time enlarging our minds so it can keep up with the Spirit. Listen, don't allow your current view of how the kingdom works to be set in stone. Once you do that, you will set a limit on what God can do. That's what John did. And he missed out. Let's be a people that create minds that are flexible enough to go where the Spirit leads and that we enjoy it. Let's, let's, let's pray for courage and be bold enough to brave enough to let our minds go to believe for the impossible. You know what? Jesus says nothing will be impossible for you. That's what he said. If you've got faith as small as a mustard seed, then nothing will be impossible for you. Eh? Okay, get your head around that one. Well, probably not. But just, okay, I can't get my head around it, but my spirit's on it. My spirit loves it when I say that stuff. My spirit's like, yes, come on. My mind's like, mm, not so sure. And you've got to decide. Which one are you going to go with? Which one are you going to believe? Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cards. Strengthen your stakes. That's my prayer for us all. That in these coming weeks and months, we are going to be a people who enlarge the place of our tent. We stretch our curtains out wide. We don't hold back. We lengthen our cards and we strengthen our stakes. If we do that, individually and corporately, we will get into what is quite for us in the future. And we'll embrace it and enjoy it. And we'll see even more incredible things than we've all already seen. That's my prayer for you. Okay, God bless. So sorry that we can't be with you in person, but I'm sure we'll be there next week. Okay, God bless.